description. There we are. If you would take out your copy of God's Word, turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, verses 12 through 20. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious morning we have to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. We thank you, Father, for what you have done on behalf of guilty sinners like us. We thank you for sending your son to save a people for himself. We thank you that he died, that he was buried, and on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. What wonderful truths we get to celebrate today. Father, I pray that as we dig into this passage and the implications of the resurrection, that you would help us to see just how necessary the resurrection truly is. And Lord, that you would penetrate hearts Father, I know that there are people here who do not know you, who may have come out just for a holiday. Lord, I pray that today you would prick their hearts, their consciences would be awakened to the need of a Savior, and that they would see Christ and see that he is that only Savior that they can turn to. Father, would you do the work that only you can do today through the power of your word? We pray and ask for your name's sake. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning, church. Just because it cannot be said enough, he is risen. risen Amen. Amen. It is good to be back with you again. What a glorious morning the Lord has given to us, this beautiful spring morning. I think since I've moved to Missouri, the spring has become my favorite season because the winters are so long here. But the spring is really, it's a yearly reminder of the coming renewal of all things. And I do, I do not think it is by coincidence, but rather it is by the very providence of God that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the spring. As Martin Luther once said, Our Lord has written the promise of the resurrection, not in books alone, but in every leaf of the springtime. The spring points us to the future resurrection and the renewal of all things. And the resurrection of Christ is what secured it on our behalf. 
And what a glorious reality that we get to celebrate that in the midst of creation awakening from its winter slumber. God has purpose in everything he does. But with that being said, I want to begin our time today with a, with a hypothetical question for you. What if there had been no resurrection? I mean, do we really understand why the resurrection is so important? What would the consequences be if there had not been a resurrection, if Christ was not raised from the dead? Would it affect our faith? Would the Christian faith be injured without it? I mean, if everything was finished upon the cross, as Jesus himself said, what need was there for a resurrection? Was it absolutely necessary? What if there was no Easter to celebrate or Resurrection Sunday to rejoice in? How would that affect things, or would it affect things? And the truth is, when it comes to our, to our witness, to outsiders, to unbelievers, the resurrection really is a stumbling block. Unbelievers don't have a problem believing in the life of Christ, that he really lived and that he really even died. They're even happy to concede that he was a great teacher. Do we really need to insist that they believe in the resurrection. Must you believe in the resurrection to be a Christian, a follower of Christ? These are important questions to consider. Now, I'm sure for most of us in this room, the clear and obvious answer to that is, is yes, you, you must believe in the resurrection in order to be a Christian. But do we know why? The resurrection has rightly been called the bedrock of Christianity. And as we will see today, without it, everything falls apart. And this is actually why there is so much attack on the resurrection. Now, books are published, debates are held, articles are written all around the merits of, of the resurrection, questioning the validity of the resurrection. Because the truth is that the Christian faith stands or falls with the truthfulness of the resurrection. And that's not just an opinion, that's, that's exactly what Scripture says. That's what this passage from 1 Corinthians 15 is, is all about. It's very clear when you read through this that the Apostle Paul thinks the resurrection matters. And we cannot downplay the significance of this doctrine. This is a hill to die on. This is a doctrine to divide over. And, and to help us understand that, I want us to explore this passage in depth. As we look at this passage today, we're going to see that there's, there's three grave consequences here that would be true if Christ was not raised from the dead. If Christ was not raised, then we have no gospel. We have no good news. If Christ was not raised, then we have no Savior. We have no salvation. And if Christ was not raised, then we have no no gospel, no Savior, no hope without the resurrection. The consequences, according to the Apostle Paul, according to the Scriptures, could not be more grave. If we don't have the resurrection, we don't have anything. So I want us to look at these consequences, but then I want us to flip them on their head and to state them in a positive form. If the resurrection is true, since the resurrection is true, what does that mean for those who believe? 
you're going to find that what you believe about what happened over 2,000 years ago in history is the most important thing about you. Because one thing we need to understand is this, this is not just a theological claim or a theological belief, but this is an actual historical claim, and this is a historical belief. The belief in the resurrection is belief in a, in a historical event. We're not talking about myths. We're not talking about legends. We're not talking about fairy tales. We are talking about historical reality, a historical claim. And every person must deal with it as such. And the truth is, for those who believe, when you understand and believe in the resurrection rightly, you understand that it is through the resurrection that God has given us everything. And I do mean everything. So let's look at this passage. Let's, let's explore these consequences. But before Paul gets to these, these three main consequences, he addresses the, the issue that was going on in, in the Corinthian church that raised this very question in the first place, the reason why he was addressing this topic. Look at verse 12. He says, Now if, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, if you are familiar with the book of Corinthians at all, uh, you know that the church in Corinth was a church that was having a few problems, to put it mildly. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter in order to bring a series of corrections and instructions to a church that was struggling on, on many fronts. Now, from the very first chapter to the very last, Paul is just addressing issue after issue after issue whether it be the divisions that had arisen in the church, whether it be sexual immorality that was going on, lawsuits that were taking place between believers, a false understanding of marriage, pride over one's spiritual knowledge, divisions over the Lord's Supper, the abuse of spiritual gifts, and on and on we could go. This letter is full of corrections. Church's Corinth is not one that you aspire to be like. In chapter 15 is no exception to that series of corrections. It's here that Paul is addressing the fact that some of the Corinthian believers were denying the resurrection of the dead. Now, they were not denying directly the, the resurrection of Christ. They were actually denying our resurrection, the resurrection of, of mankind. Uh, they believed that the soul was immortal, that there would be spiritual afterlife, but they denied the validity of the resurrection of the dead. In their view, the afterlife was just some kind of spiritual existence, spiritual reality, rather than a physical one. But what they did not realize is, is that idea has massive and devastating implications. Look at what Paul says in verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. You see, the truth is, ideas have consequences. When you tamper with doctrines that are major tenets of the faith, you may think that you're only dealing with one issue, but the truth is we cannot treat theological concepts independently. These things are all tied together. The Bible is not a systematic theology book. There are some truths that you cannot deny without inadvertently denying other truths that are tied to them. 
What God has done and who He is cannot be piecemealed apart because His actions and His character and His purposes are all tied together. And Paul is here giving us a wonderful example of that truth in this text. He says to the Corinthians, you need to stop and think about the implications of what you are saying, of what you are believing. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then that would apply to Christ too. That means that not even Christ has been raised. Now, I think Paul's, Paul's logic here is based on two realities. The first being the most obvious one. If you deny that God raises man from the dead, then certainly that applies to Christ too because He was truly man and He truly died. But the second reason is because that these things are bound together is because of our union with Christ as believers. We'll see Paul talk about this when we get down to verse 20. He, He brings this out showing that Christ was actually the first fruits of that which is to come. Because Christ was raised, His people, all of those who are in Christ, must be raised. But if believers are not raised, then that means that not even Christ has been raised. Because God has bound them together by God's design. To deny the believer's resurrection is to deny the resurrection of Christ. And to deny the resurrection of Christ is to lose everything. If Christ has not been raised, then we have nothing. And this is what Paul is going to argue now with these three consequences. The first being that we have no gospel. If Christ has not been raised, then we have no gospel. Look at verses 14 and 15. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. You see, Paul's not letting up here. He is just, he's just pressing them into the dangerous implications of their error. If, if Christ has not been raised, then everything He has taught them through His preaching as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and everything that they have put their faith in, is vain. It's just vanity. And by vain, he means that it has absolutely no moral, spiritual, or intellectual value whatsoever. It's utterly meaningless. Your faith is vapid. It's worthless. Your faith in the preaching of the gospel is completely meaningless without the resurrection. See, the truth is, You cannot have the Christian faith without the resurrection. Many have tried, actually. Many have tried to have the faith without the resurrection. Many have tried to eliminate the supernatural aspects of the Bible in order to put God into their logical box. Many even very smart and respected figures in history have tried to have the faith without the resurrection. Men like Martin Luther King Jr., For example, the beloved Baptist leader of the civil rights movement, he denied both the virgin birth and the resurrection. Or Thomas Jefferson, 
a founding father of this country and a signer of the Declaration of Independence, he went so far as to create his own Bible, known as the Jefferson Bible, in which he literally removed, literally cut out every supernatural aspect of the gospel, including the miracles of Christ and the resurrection. But whether it be King's denial or Jefferson's removal of the resurrection, they both destroyed the Christian faith. Because the truth is, you cannot remove or deny the resurrection and call yourself a Christian in any meaningful way. The resurrection is the climax and seal of the gospel. The Apostle Paul says that his preaching, his gospel, stands or falls with the truth of the resurrection. And if the resurrection is not true, then neither is his preaching and neither is your In fact, this is how Paul opened this entire chapter. He wanted to remind the Corinthians of just the base content of the gospel. Go back to chapter or to verse one of chapter fifteen. Let's read these first few verses together. Look at what he says. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here's what is of first importance. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day, accordance with the Scriptures. You see, Paul began this chapter with a reminder of what he was preaching the very, the very base level of Paul's preaching was the gospel. The gospel in which the Corinthians had placed their faith. And notice what it all boils down to. According to Paul's gospel, Christ truly died according to the Scriptures for our sins. He was buried and Christ arose from the grave three days later according to the Scriptures. That is the truth of the gospel. You see, the gospel does not end at the cross but with the resurrection. And your faith rests on the reality of the resurrection. If it did not happen, the gospel is void. Preaching is worthless and your faith is vain. It's all for nothing. And what's worse, if it is true that Christ was not raised, then the Apostle Paul and every one of us who has ever shared the gospel even once are found to be misrepresenting God. Uh, Because we're telling people that God did something that he, in fact, did not do, which was to raise his own son from the dead. We would be telling people good news that has actually no basis in reality. We would be telling people a false gospel, and we would all be liable for that false gospel in judgment as we have misrepresented the God of glory. According to the law, anyone who presumes to speak on behalf of God and does so falsely deserves to die. If Christ has not been raised, then we have no gospel, and we ought not to misrepresent God. That's consequence one. No resurrection, no gospel. Preaching is vain, your faith is vain, we're misrepresenting God. Consequence two, no resurrection, no Savior. Look at verses 16 and 17. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So Paul reasserts his main argument here, that if there's no resurrection of the dead, then that applies to Christ too, that not even Christ has been raised. And if that is true, then your faith is futile. Not, not just vain, but now he says futile, and you are still in your sins. Now, the use of this word futile, he's now just talking about faith not merely as meaningless, as he said, with, with vanity, but now he's talking about its powerlessness, that it is fruitless, that it will not produce what you are hoping it will produce. And chief among those outcomes of, of our faith that we are hoping for is, is the forgiveness of our sins, right? I mean, this is what we rejoice in. This is what we rest in, that in Christ our sins have been washed away, that they have been forgiven. But the truth is, without the resurrection, you, you have no forgiveness. Why? Because you have no Savior. Now you, you may say, wait a minute. I thought our sins were paid for, atoned for, on the cross. Is not the cross the place where God poured out His wrath against our sin? Didn't Jesus say, it is finished upon the cross? Did not the cross secure our forgiveness? Well, yes. That is, that is absolutely true. When Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, His atoning work was finished. Tetelestai means the debt is paid in full. It was done. However, we need to ask the question, how is it that we know that that sacrifice was acceptable to God and that it had its intended effect? What event marks the acceptability of His sacrifice and proves its power to the world? It is the resurrection. As one writer has put it, the resurrection of Christ is God's amen to the sacrifice of Christ. Christ gave His life as a substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of His people, and God publicly put His stamp of approval on it by raising Him from the dead. God publicly declared to the world that He has accepted this sacrifice through the resurrection. You see, you cannot separate these things. Because if, if Christ was not raised, that means His sacrifice was not acceptable to God. It means that His sacrifice actually meant nothing. It atoned for nothing. It accomplished nothing. Further, that would mean that Christ Himself would still be in the clutches of death. And if that were true, that would mean that death had a hold on Him. And that has massive implications for the person of Christ. Because what is death, biblically speaking? Death is the wages of sin. Death is the consequence of sin. Death entered this world not through creation, but through sin. Romans 5. Death is not natural. Death is supernatural. 
Death is a supernatural punishment for sin. And if Christ is still dead, that would mean that Christ is not the sinless Savior because death actually had a claim on Him. And if that were true, then you have no Savior. God did not accept His sacrifice, and you are still dead in your sins, which can only earn you the eternal wage of death. Eternal death. A death in which you are always dying, but never dead. It is a terrifying prospect to remain in your sins, for then you will face God's wrath on your own with no sacrifice. Which leads us to consequence number three. If Christ was not raised, then we have no gospel. If Christ was not raised, then we have no Savior. And if Christ was not raised, then we have no hope. No resurrection, no hope. Look at verses 18 and 19. Then those who also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul's third and final consequence that deals with the hope of our salvation is what? What is the, the hope of our salvation? What is the promise that Christ has made to all who believe over and over and over, especially as we've been going through the Gospel of John? What is our hope? What is he dealing with here? Eternal life. Eternal life. That is the promise to all who believe. I mean, that's the, that's the promise of the most famous verse in all of Scripture, right? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. But if, if Christ has not been raised, then that promise is null and void. If Christ has not been raised, then there, there is no eternal life for anyone. And every Christian you have ever known that has died has perished forever. They're not with God now in spirit, and they will never be resurrected to life eternal from the dead to live with God forever. If Christ has not been raised, then we have no comfort no hope about those who have died as believers. They have, they have perished, and that is it for them. If you've ever been to a funeral for a believer and a funeral for an unbeliever and seen and felt the contrast, then you know of which Paul is speaking of here. When you attend a, a believer's funeral, yes, there's grief. Yes, there is, there is loss. Yes, there's even tears. But uniquely, there is hope. There's even joy. There's even celebration and worship at a funeral, knowing that God's promises have extended to this one, and they are now with Him, and they have an eternity of joy with God forever, and a resurrection to look forward to for life to come. So there's great joy at a believer's funeral. But in contrast, at an unbeliever's funeral, there is no hope. 
There is no joy. There is no celebration. There is only grief and only sorrow. So much so that it can only be described as despair because there's nothing left for that person but a dark and certain expectation of judgment. It is, a, it is a feeling of utter hopelessness for that individual who has passed into eternity as God's enemy, separated from God forever. And the truth is, if Christ has not been raised, that's every funeral. Not just for unbelievers, but every funeral. Only despair, no hope. And that would apply to us, too. We would have no comfort, no hope about our own pending death, which, as we all know, will be upon us sooner and quicker than we can imagine. And this is why Paul says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why? Well, because everything that we're basing our life around is a sham. Everything that we are living for and hoping for will not come to pass. As Christians, we are a people who do not live for this temporal life, but we are a people who live with eternity in mind. But if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then that eternity will never come, at least not in the way that we're hoping. And this is why Paul says later, if the dead are not raised, then we should just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Who cares how we live? This is the closest thing to heaven than we'll ever experience, so we might as well just live it up. Living in a world where there is no resurrection, where there is no Easter to celebrate, would be the bleakest possible world to live in. A world where sin reigns supreme, death has its way with everyone, judgment is coming, and there is no hope, and there is no escape. That is the world without the resurrection. That is the world that would be if Christ has not been raised from the dead. It's not a pleasant thought at all. See, the resurrection affects everything. And praise be to God, that is not the world in which we live. That is not reality. Look at verse 20. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. We don't live in a world where there's no Easter to celebrate and no resurrection to hope in. You see, the resurrection of the dead is not just a theological reality, but it is a historical fact. Christ has been raised from the dead. In fact, Paul labored at the beginning of this chapter to establish the historicity of the resurrection in that beginning section that we started about the gospel that he was preaching. He wanted the Corinthians to know that his gospel that they were hoping in was not just his gospel. It was a historical event. Look look back at at verse 3 of chapter 15. Look at what he said. He said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Verse 5, And 
that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, that's his brother, then to all the apostles, which would include Paul himself on the Damascus road. You see, this isn't a story he just came up with. This was historical reality witnessed by all of the apostles and more than 500 people, most of which were still alive at the time of this writing. You see, Paul includes that little detail so that it could be shown that it was verifiable. There were eyewitnesses' testimony that they could go talk to alive and well then. And not just a few, hundreds of them. Hundreds of people had encountered the resurrected Christ. In the law, in the law of God, everything had to be established by two or three witnesses. Christ had hundreds upon hundreds who could give eyewitness account for his resurrection. It is a historical reality. You see, the truth is, there is a reason why all of history turns on the life of this one man on the life of Christ. We even, we even split time according to his birth. When we, when we speak of years, we speak of them as either being B.C. or A.D. That has to do with the birth of Christ. That can be said about no one else. History does not turn on Muhammad. History does not turn on Buddha. History turns on Jesus Christ. His life, the life of Christ, was on display before hundreds of thousands of people Countless people witnessed his ministry and his teachings and his miracles. And because of that, even secular, atheistic historians dare not deny his existence lest they be laughed out of their fields. However, what they will deny is the resurrection. Because they have to. Because they know that if he really did rise from the grave, then he is who he says he is. He's God in the flesh. But here's the truth. History not only turns on the life, the existence of Christ, it actually turns on the resurrection of Christ. You you actually cannot make sense of world history without it. For if Christ had not been raised, then nothing that has happened would have happened as a result of his coming to life. All his opponents had to do was produce a body. And this whole thing would have just been over. He's not resurrected. We have his body. If they did that, the the, the apostles would have no message. There would be no gospel. There would have been no Christians. There would have been no churches. Millions and millions of churches all over the world throughout the ages. And billions and billions of Christians all over the world throughout the ages never would have existed. If they could just produce a body. Historians recognizing that fact, resort to the same idea that was put forth by the Jews, that the apostles stole the body and hid the body. That's the leading theory to try to give explanation to this whole thing. They resort to the same conspiracy theory as the Jews did in Matthew's gospel. The truth is, when you think about that theory, it's really just kind of dumb. You're telling me that this band of, of nobody fishermen 
went to a tomb that was sealed by a giant stone and guarded by Roman soldiers who were some pretty bad dudes. I mean, some of the toughest guys in history. They overtook those guys, these fishermen, and then they rolled away the stone, they took out his body, and they went and hid it somewhere. And then for the rest of their lives, they lived in constant dangers and persecutions until all of their bloody deaths, except for John, all for what? A sham? They weren't getting rich off this thing. They're not preaching the prosperity gospel. There was nothing in it for them in this world. Why would they do that if they knew it was a lie? They wouldn't. They wouldn't. The only way to explain what has happened and to explain the fact that all of you are sitting in this room today is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These guys weren't willing to die for a sham, but they were willing to die for the resurrection. They were willing to die for the resurrected Christ that they encountered These guys were eyewitnesses. They heard, they saw, they even touched the resurrected Christ and they gave their lives to spreading that good news that Christ rose from the grave. And because that is true, it has massive consequences for those who believe. To understand that, we can now take these consequences that we've worked through and just flip them on their heads. Because Christ rose from the grave, we have a gospel to believe in, to cling to, and to proclaim. Our faith and our preaching is anything but vain. You can rest assured that you're not misrepresenting God when you place your hope in and you proclaim to others that He raised Christ from the grave. You are trusting in objective reality. You're trusting in God's grand plan of redemption, which He has done out in the open. And even more than that, you get to participate in His plan of redemption when you share the gospel with others. That's what the gospel is. It's good news to be told. Gospel means good news. We have good news from on high that God has done something to redeem mankind, to reconcile broken sinners to Himself, And he has sealed that promise by raising his own son from the dead. When you spread that message, not only are you not misrepresenting God, but you are living in obedience to what God has called you to to do and who God has called you to be. As the, uh, the apostle Peter said, because of the resurrection, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. You have been called to be children of light and in that to be light in this very dark world. Because of the resurrection, we have a gospel, a gospel to cling to and a gospel to proclaim. But secondly, because of the resurrection, we have a Savior We have salvation. We have a Savior who has redeemed us from our sins. We are no longer in our sins. When Christ rose from the grave, it was indeed the Father's amen to His sacrifice. God accepted what Christ did on the cross on our behalf, and He validated that with the resurrection. 
It was there on the cross that for, his, for our sake, He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what we, we call the great exchange. Christ took our sin and our punishment and He gives to everyone who believes His righteousness and His reward. That means, believer, that your sin has been dealt with in full. Every sin. Every sin you ever committed before you came to Christ. Every sin that you have ever committed since you have come to Christ. Every sin that you have committed this week. Every sin that you will commit in the future has been dealt with in full. It is forgiven in Christ. That means Psalm 103, one of the most beautiful passages in all Scripture, is yours in Christ Jesus. It's yours because Christ secured the truth of it on the cross through the resurrection. Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide nor keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove His transgressions from us. The truth of that psalm was accomplished and secured through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for every believer. You have a Savior, church, and He lives Because Christ rose, we have a gospel. Because Christ rose, we have a Savior. And lastly, because Christ rose from the grave, we have hope. Eternal hope. If there's one thing you really need to understand in order to understand the security of our hope, it is our union with Christ. By God's grace, every believer has been placed in union with Christ by God. And that means that his death was our death. And that means that his resurrection was our resurrection. And there's a reason why Paul calls his resurrection the first fruits, because there is more to come, and that's us. And because we are in union with him, everything given to Christ is given to his people. We are his body. As Paul said in Romans 6, For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Christ's death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. And that means that death does not have the final word for us. For the believer, there is hope even in death. Even when we lose loved ones in Christ, Unlike the world around us, we have hope even in that. Listen listen to what Scripture says about this, about our future hope, both for those who have already died in the Lord and for those who will be alive at the second coming. This is 1 Thessalonians 4. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. 
For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's our future hope, brothers and sisters. And because of that, rather than being those who are most to be pitied in this world, we are actually those who are the most privileged in this world. We are the recipients of the riches of God's grace that He has lavished upon us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of the resurrection, we have an eternal future with the Lord as co-heirs with Christ of everything. He has given us everything. His inheritance is our inheritance. Christ is our hope both in life and in death because of the resurrection. Don't ever buy into any argument that says the resurrection is not important. There is nothing more important than the resurrection. And there is nothing more real than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's through that that we have eternal hope. Now, I want to finish by saying this. If you are here today and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not trusting in His death, burial, and resurrection, if you've not encountered the risen Christ through the truth of the gospel, then none of what I just said to you is true for you. You are still in the state of which the Apostle Paul described earlier in this passage. You, you have no gospel to cling to. You have no Savior, meaning you are still in your sins. And you have no hope. All you have is the knowledge that death is coming. And it's coming quick. But that doesn't have to be the final word on your life. Yes, I know you have sinned. I know you have done things for which you are ashamed. I know that because you're a sinner. I know that you may have secrets or patterns in your life that you just can't seem to break away from. But sinner, hear this. That's exactly why you need a Savior. You can't do it on your own. You can't save yourself. You can't be good enough. You can't clean your life up enough. You can't make enough changes in your life to be acceptable to God. You can't. You never will. No one ever has. You need a Savior. But I want you to listen to the promise of Scripture. A promise that is laid before you today. For which you will be held accountable eternally. This comes from Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that means true belief, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. It's not about what you can do. 
It is about what Christ has done. Christianity is all about grace. It is not about works. It is by grace that we are saved through faith. Not of works, lest any man should boast. There will be no boasting in heaven. You won't be boasting about what you did. If you're there, you will only be boasting about what he did. The only thing you need to do is believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust in his merits rather than your own, to give up on yourself and to rest in him. If you do that, then forgiveness and eternity is yours. It's yours today. You can walk out of this building saved with your eternity different now. All of the promises of scriptures will be yours in Christ if you just trust in him. That is God's promise to you, not mine, God's. Christ rose from the grave. He lives. He lives, and the promises of His grace are open to anyone and everyone today. Let's pray. Father, what marvelous truths. He's risen. Thank you that your Son rose from the grave. Thank you that we do not have a Savior who is still in the grave, but we have one who is standing now at your right hand, interceding on our behalf. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for Easter. Thank you for Resurrection Sunday. Thank you that this world is proclaiming the resurrection every year with this change of seasons by your providence and by your creative work. God, we rejoice in what you have done. We rejoice in your Son. And we pray that we would walk in the newness of life that the resurrection has achieved on our behalf. And Lord, if there are some here who have heard this message, grant them faith, we pray. Open their eyes. Help them to trust in Jesus today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.